the first thing we have to do is actually get someone's attention and make them want to get engaged. And there's ways to do that. And clearly, you know, a lot of those are basic biological reasons. What's up, branding experts? Arik here at Ewig Design, and welcome to On Branding Podcast. And today, my guest is Sean Adams. And Sean is the chair of undergraduate and graduate graphic design at Art Center College of Design. And Sean is also an on-screen instructor for LinkedIn Learning. And he's the only two-term AIGA national president in AIGA's 100-year history. So in addition to that, in 2014, Sean was awarded the AIGA medal. It is the highest honor in the profession. And previously, Sean was a founding partner of Adams Marioka and worked with clients with big brands like Adobe, Gap, Target, Disney, among other big brands. So Sean is also the author of multiple best-selling books including this one, How Design Makes Us Think, and this is the book we are going to talk about today. Hello, Sean. Thanks for taking the time to join us on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. And like I said, I mean, this podcast is so amazing. We have such great guests, and the content is truly, it's, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. You are a great guest, actually, so I'm happy you were able to join us. So... I wanted to talk to you about uh, the content of this book. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really great book. You give us a lot of examples to illustrate all of these chapters in the book. So basically, the premise of the book is that as designers, we must be more purposeful and aware of the formal choices that we make, right? Yeah, so when that, it comes to think like... I think that uh, and, the, and on the opposite side, for people that are civilians to read it and actually understand that designers are making purposeful choices, that they're not just mm-hmm. arbitrarily saying, oh, I'll make it red because I feel funny that day. You know, as designers, we're logical, you know, smart people. Mm-hmm. And it's important for, I think, our clients to understand this. We're not just wackadoodle artists that are, you know, toiling away at a, in an attic in France. Right. And you talk about that in the book is some of it is intuition, but for the most part, there are some reasons for why we make those choices, right? So, you know, and you dive into those reasons, sociological, psychological, historical reasons, and asking yourself the question, what visual and conceptual cues resonate with us and why? So mm-hmm. as you said, you know, it could be for creatives who do it more um, intuitively and now try to understand perhaps the science behind it or to be able to articulate better their designs to, to their clients, for example, or just, you know, regular people, as you said, to help them understand why we make those choices as designers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So basically, you divide your book into 13 chapters, right? So what I wanted to do, you know, if time allows, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes just giving our listeners an overview of each. Mm-hmm. Uh, so starting with the first one, seduction, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you seduce the viewer? How we can use design to you know, invite people to become more intimate with our message? Now, we are going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. Listen, my mission is to help people design iconic brands. So whether you're a business leader who wants to be more intentional with branding and all of its aspects, or you're a creative professional who wants to attract powerful clients and truly be able to help them succeed with branding, then you need to start with a discovery session in order to develop a strategy that will inform all of your creative work. And everything that you need to learn how to do that, you can find in my online courses at ebigdesign.com slash shop, where I share with you my worksheets, case studies, video tutorials, and other additional resources to help you feel safe and strong about your process. 
Now let's get back to our interview. I mean, you know, seduction is, it's, it seemed to me that, that I started with that chapter because it was the entry point to almost anything that, you know, our job as designers is the first thing we have to do is actually get someone's attention and make them want to get engaged. And there's ways to do that. And clearly, you know, a lot of those are basic biological reasons that we're going to respond to brighter colors because they typically meant good things. That's a good berry to eat. That's like a fresh fruit as opposed to, okay, that's a murky color. Perhaps that rotting meat's not so tasty. So I think those basic sort of biological reasons that people are attracted to things, plus, you know, the reasons intellectually, like why someone might see something and want to want to engage is really critical that, you know, you're asking the viewer to ask questions, to look at something and say, gee, I don't under, I, I need to know more. And that's, that's sort of what we're always trying to do as designers. And I have this argument every once in a while with someone and they'll say, well, I don't think work has to be attractive. I don't think it has to be attractive either, but I do think it has to seduce the viewer. I think something has to engage the viewer in a way that makes them want to dig deeper. Right. So you talk about color, as you said, primary colors and associate them with some positive feelings, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like you said, fruits, flowers. And you talk also about form in this chapter, that there are shapes that, you know, we naturally find attractive. And here you talk a lot about you know, golden proportions, golden rectangle and Fibonacci sequence and so on. And you give us actually a lot of examples here. So just for our listeners to, you know, just wanted to show us what's the content of the book. So there is a lot of examples, illustrations. So, yeah, I mean, so I love that example us. by Herb Lubell in the Eros magazine, which mm -hmm. is... Um, that was an erotic magazine, right? Like, that's the, you know, and, and it's amazing that Lubalin took it and redefined it from sort of the girly mag that was typically out there at the time and used, you know, for the cover of that one, bright yellow and a big amount of negative space and, and all of these things that would first get your attention, but then very quickly tell the, the reader or the, the viewer, this is not your typical erotic magazine. This is for someone who appreciates good design or understands negative space. All of those kinds of little cues get thrown in there. So that the so that I, if I'm just looking for some like really revolting pornography, that's not the place to go. You know that I'm going to know. Oh no, I'm going to go there, and there's going to be probably smart content, something interesting. And Lou Ballon was a genius at that. It's sort of tapping into the the things that we value in terms of emotional resonance, and and utilizing those um, in in such a great way. I mean, I think it's funny with Eros too that. We look at it, you can look at it now, and it's so tame. I mean, it's so like just polite, intellectual sort of discussions. But the commentary that they would get back then, like you're going to hell for doing this magazine, it's just, it's amazing you know, how, how times change. Right. So let's talk about the next one, efficiency. So in the next chapter, we talk about efficiency. So my question is, so wh why efficiency is so important when it comes to design and how we can use it as designers to, to our advantage? I mean, I think the first thing with efficiency to consider that I had not actually considered until I started working on the book was the fact that efficiency is a modern concept that obviously we're going to like something that works better than something that doesn't. I'm going to like a round wheel because it actually functions as opposed to the square wheel, right? Like that's just sort of, you know, a given. But this idea of valuing efficiency as an attribute that we, sh we should really adhere to, I think is a very 20th century sort of Bauhaus concept. That, you know, making something with the least resources 
to actually succeed is what makes it efficient. That if I have to, you know, if I have to work a lot on this cup to make to be able to drink out of it, I'm not going to like it. But, you know, we've been taught this is efficient. It has a handle. It doesn't get too hot. It does all the things it should do. As opposed to, say, someone in France in the 18th century, they weren't that concerned about efficiency. They were more concerned about beauty. You know, they're like, you know, they want that teapot to be like fancy, you know, like a lot of gold stuff all over it. And it's probably a nightmare clean, but that was that society's values. And I think it's interesting that we, you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries really say the least resources necessary to actually achieve a result is what we, we want. Um, it doesn't mean it's the right thing. It just means it's the thing that's happening right now. Right. So, so in this chapter, you talk about Bauhaus, right? As you said, you know, they rejected ornamentation and, and all kind of unnecessary decoration, right? Focusing on, on the fun- function and form. And you hear you also talk about modernist principles like simplicity, geometric perfection, form follows function, less is more, and so on. So I think this is pretty interesting. And, you know, all designers should be familiar with those concepts. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I think it's interesting too, you know, that those principles came out of the wreckage of World War One. You know, that group of artists and designers really looked at World War One and said that was called caused by the aristocracy. I mean, that was not about, you know, the working man. We just got our hands dirty because there was banking issues. And let's reject anything that has to do with, you know, this sort of aristocracy or what is, you know, seen as corruption and focus purely on these universal forms that, in theory, everyone could relate to. And it would discard envy and it would discard any kind of sense of, of um, social hierarchy. Obviously, that doesn't work. You know, we're individuals. I recall like going to the Bauhaus on a tour and, and the dorms there are identical, right? Like every room is this exactly the same. Everybody got the same bed, the same little nightstand, the same desk. And then you see pictures of what the students did to it. And everyone was totally unique, which must have driven the professors mad, like, you're supposed to keep it all the same. It's not supposed to be individual. But I really like that idea that they tried They tried to use design to make a better world. I think it's one of the first instances of we can create a utopian society if we follow these values. Right. So that would be about efficiency. So in the next chapter, maybe we can talk about the concept of love. Here you talk about some brands aspire to inject love in, in their message, right? And mm-hmm. an example would be McDonald's. Mm-hmm. McDonald's tagline, I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. The logo, I love New York, right? Which was designed to promote New York City. So can you talk to us about what are some of the ways to communicate the concept of love in a piece of design? I, it's such a great question. You have good questions. Um, the issue of love, it was such a complicated chapter to work on. And I actually at one point thought about discarding it because it was like a whole other book. I'm like, this is really getting me in deep trouble because there were different kinds of love, right? There's erotic love, there's sensual love, there's paternal love. There's all these different facets of love as a concept. And what I found really exciting, and it really was like a light bulb went off on my head, was the fact that as designers, we are somehow able to convey the complexity of that emotion. The contradictions that exist within that state are difficult, right? Like, okay, I love, you know, I, I love my mother, but she drives me mad. You know, there's, a, there's all these issues, you know, mm-hmm. involved with something like that. One of my favorite examples, I think, was Marion Banshee's um, Valentine's cards that are so amazing at their ability to pull in all of these different aspects of travel and romance and expectations and and but at the same time this overlay of the contradictions and the complexities of love that was extremely exciting and 
And then the fact that, you know, historically we, we looked at erotic love in such constrained ways that really point to, I think, some instances, some things we need to think about in society today that, you know, like typically erotic love was defined for the other. Like it was fine if it was like Aphrodite, right? It was fine if it was some natives in Tahiti, but it wasn't okay if it was like your next door neighbor, you know, and, and the fact that we would ascribe these difficult feelings societally to the other is something that's really interesting. And, and, and once I, once I saw that, I really started to see in contemporary times how that happens, how those, how those really complex, difficult issues can somehow be sort of pushed off onto, well, it's not us, so, but it's okay with them. But that happened a lot to do with love. And I, like Milton's I Love New York, it's, it's so simple, so beautiful, um, you know, so to the point, but like the idea of love, it embodied so much complexity, right? I love New York, but good God, the garbage is awful. I love New York, but yeah. the weather's yeah. terrible, right? It's, it's, it's so hard to live here, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's inherent in that identity. Or, you know, McDonald's, I'm loving it, which is actually kind of a subliminal way of saying, don't feel guilty about going to McDonald's and not cooking for your family. It's okay because you love it. Like there's these sort of messages that I found that, you know, designers, we just sort of embed in there without even thinking. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm loving it. The, the slogan, yeah, is brilliant. And I love this illustration as well here. Isn't it gorgeous that Alexander Gerard? Yeah. It's just... I highlighted here Kochanie. It's, it's, it's in Polish, actually. Yeah, um, exactly. From Poland. Yeah. And I, that's right. I mean, someone like, you know, when you work with amazing designers, you know, and someone like Gerard, who, who's like, you know, thinking globally and integrating like all of these different aspects and then creating something so elegant and beautiful. It's, it's something designers are so, so good at. Right. And you give us here a lot of examples, but uh, I wanted to talk, since we have 13 chapters to talk about. Yeah, I'm so sorry can... about that. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 that's, that's fine. Start with. So I did cut them down. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about humor now. We talked about love a little bit. So why humor is an extraordinary tool for designers? Why do you think so? Humor is such a great Trojan horse. It is such a great way to get through the door without someone recognizing that you're actually bearing gifts they may not want. Um, I love the fact that I can talk about a, a difficult issue a controversial issue by embedding it in something that's sort of funny, you know, because by funny, you accept it. It's like, Oh, that's, that's okay. And I mean, I think that means, yeah. Yeah. Like the Neo Neo um, posters in there, you know, um, for a festival in Geneva and, you know, they look sweet and funny and soft and humorous, but in fact, they're talking about voyeurism and selfies and do DIY graph. I mean, it's all these other issues embedded in there or, or Angad Singh's um, I Love Graphic Design poster, which has really corny, you know, like cats with laser eyes and, 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 you yeah, know, it's, it's so, it's, I love right. that. I love that thing. I have it on my wall. It's so great. You know, and the corny gradations and comic sans, it does all these evil things you're not supposed to do. So it's this in joke for designers like, oh, isn't this funny? I'm doing all these bad things. But it, in reality, it's talking about a new language of memes. And the fact that memes is actually a language that's sort of in constant crazy evolution. If I did a poster about that, that like that'd be boring as hell, right? But by doing dragging in the humor, I'm in there already. It's just such a great way to disarm someone. And then then they're like, oh my God, I didn't want to even think about that. Now I'm stuck, you know? Right. 
So uh, some of my key takeaways from this chapter, as a designer, we can get away with more if the message or experience is humorous, right? As you said, it's going to make it more approachable, Mm -hmm. especially when we talk about some boring industry or boring message or or, or something like that. We can make it more appealing to the audience. So, you know... uh, when it comes to colors, as you say in this section, bright colors and happy symbols that usually is going to, going to evoke, you know, uh, positive feelings and some humor in our designs, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think the, the idea of adding the bright colors and you know that was another that's another sort of interesting aspect of humor that there's a naughty factor to humor. Um, you know, that's sort of the typical basis of a joke is that it somehow has to lead to the unexpected. Um, I use the example of a Henny Youngman joke, which is um, while playing golf today, I stepped on, I, I hit two good balls. I stepped on a rake, right? So you're forced yeah. to imagine someone playing golf. Then you're forced to imagine him or her hitting two good balls and then the rake. And then it's like, oh my God, that's not what I expected. And right. it's a little naughty. And I feel sort of like, oh, I got it now, right? So there's that sort of release in there of tension. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's the thing where humor works well. It always has that little edge of, I'm a little bad. Like there's a little, you know, um, in here and it's, it starts off all nice and sweet, but there's always something that gets thrown in there in the end that you don't expect. I like the fact, like, I love the example that I actually, you know, refer to in there with Star Wars, which is that humor is relegated to the hero can never be funny. Like the hero has to be serious. The hero, Luke Skywalker is serious. Like he's like serious hero, dude. Han Solo is a little naughty. He can be funny, you know? So that little levity sort of opens that door to like, you can say things that are a little off color or a little like, oh, I didn't expect that. It's, it's a great tool for designers, you know, sort of work around um, yeah. with, with some difficult issues. Right. And some great example in packaging, for example, you show oh, us I love that um, thing. this one, which you guys can see, they used vegetables to describe the size of a condom, right? Yeah. As you can see here. <laughs> it looks Very so nice, too. right? Like it just looks like such a, what a lovely packaging for something. And then, oh my God, it's condom packaging. And what am I holding? And I like the, I love the fact that the experience of that, which is critically, you know, the issue that designer found on that was that girth is more problematic than length because of, you know, functional issues. And so getting the right girth is really critical for a condom to work. So in order to figure that out, you're going to actually have to like hold something and be like, yeah, that's about right. I mean, I really think that's, you know, what a great experience for someone to have to be like, oh my God, now I realize what I'm holding, you know? Yeah. So I'm not sure if you guys realize. So yeah, they reference vegetables, right? So you can guys see. So um, yeah, that was a genius. uh, Okay. So maybe let's talk about one or two more. Um, We have a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So the next chapter is about intelligence. So how do designers convey intelligence in in their design? How to communicate, uh, you know, intellectual aptitude? Mm -hmm. I mean, let me turn that back on you. Like which example in there would you respond to the most in the intelligence chapter? Either the first one. Yeah. I mean, I love that one. That's such a a great one. This, This idea that, so Obviously, many of our clients, like I don't think we any of us have clients, either whether we work in-house or we work, you know, um, you know, as you know, at an agency, no client's going to come to me and say, can I appear stupid? Like everybody's basically like list of attributes, intelligent, right? How do I convey intelligence? Well, of course, in today's world, we're going to describe intelligence with really simple things like 
basic geometry, simple forms, technical looking stuff, you know, things that have to do more with the scientific and the rational as opposed to the emotional. And that, you know, the, the ability to take very simple forms and very sort of minimal tools and allow then the viewer to have to do some of that work is what says I'm intelligent. That's the thing, you know, like my iPhone, like I could be like, yeah, this is an intelligent object, right? It's, it looks intelligent. If I have, you know, some big fancy doodle thing, then it's probably not, right? You know, and so I'm like, well, this is clearly, this tells me I'm intelligent. Well, who knows? Maybe the damn thing barely works, you know, but I'm still going to ascribe to it. Oh, that's intelligent. Or your microphone. It's like, it's gorgeously designed. It's black. It's telling me I am a serious object. I am serious here and I work well and I'm intelligent, right? Like this is for someone who knows what they're doing. Um, as opposed to if you went and bought the Barbie microphone, which probably would be pink and sort of big and bulbousy, right? Yeah. Yeah, we can imagine, definitely we can imagine that. So yeah, some other examples here, as you were talking about scientific kind of look and feel. Like yeah, that, that, this that data. work, so gorgeous. I mean, you know, and I mean, I won't go into, that's a deep story, but it's such a complex story about the musician that the work is about. And the ability to replicate it in this form, but the audience was the kind of were the kind of people that responded to intelligent work. That they're like, I'm gonna, I want to listen to that as opposed to Justin Bieber. You know that that's very clearly aligned with that. That I that tells me, oh, I'll buy that record. That that's for me. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've talked about the intelligence, and in this chapter. You talk about the elegance, you know, and how we can use form and, and aesthetics in general, you know, when it comes to, for example, using serif typeface, right? Mm -hmm. uh, classical typefaces or uh, certain colors that would convey that, you know, prestige, that value. Uh, so how do you design something that would be perceived as elegant? Well, the core of elegance in the end that, that, that it really boiled down to was proportion. I just found that that, you know, there's different different eras, different cultures have different values in terms of like, I, oh, I, I think this is beautiful and wonderful. But everything that you would say, that's an elegant design is based on really beautiful proportions. And whether that proportion is the golden rectangle that people are utilizing, or I think I'm using an example of a George Nelson um, um, chaise lounge in there, which is a series of golden rectangles. It, it's built on a beautiful grid. Well, the normal consumer is never going to notice that, but it's going to feel right, right? You know, and it's sort of like, it goes to the heart of when somebody tells me, oh, I hate grids. I'm like, are you out of your mind? You hate grids? It's the basis of like good proportion. That's what makes things elegant is, is the ability to work with consistent values that build something. You know, the human mind, we live to put things together, right? Like we just sort of, are, we're hardwired to try to make sense of the world. So if I look at a box of disparate objects, I'm immediately going to start to figure out, well, oh, I'll move all the orange ones here. I'll move all the blue ones here. You know, that's what we do. By organizing something with beautiful gridded structures, it just feels right. There's not so much discord. Like it's already come together in a way that I, as a, as a human being, be like, oh, that feels right. You know, like my bookcase, it's like, you know, basically like squares. I don't have to work that hard at it. It's like, oh, I got it. Right. It's all where it should be. I can accept this now. So it's that it's that it's just that core idea of like work with beautiful proportions and maintain those proportions. And you'll end up with something that is elegant. 
um, which I really found like, you know, go back to like, you know, Roman statuary and move your way up and anything that we consider, well, that's what incredibly beautiful and elegant. There's some remarkable proportions built in there. Right. And some of the examples here, uh, just, Oh yeah. Like the Ava's Isol, um, pottery, just, I mean, beautiful, pottery. right? I mean, yeah. so it is exactly the same shapes over and over again. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, wonderfully the, the, crafted. Those colors. Yeah they, yeah. they are beautiful. And, and the photography itself, you know, of those objects and also like a page layout right here where we you were right, just about talking grids. about the, Yeah. The grids and the proportions, right? Yeah. And in some of that, I really realized, like when I would talk to some of my clients and they'd say, oh, can't you move this here? And be like, no, it's not on the grid. And they're like, what are you talking about? And so I really felt like maybe I need to put in something there as a grid. Like for if you're a civilian and you're working with a designer, you say, oh, I see why they're doing what they're doing now. This mm -hmm. isn't just they're just putting things like randomly. Yeah, you know, where I, definitely, I definitely can relate. And I think most of designers can relate to that, that, you know, we as designers, we know we know that or we instinctively align things to grids, to certain elements, like on a page, for example, some layout of a page, right? There is like invisible lines and uh, clients sometimes, you know, they have some requests that would break that grid uh, because mm -hmm. they don't, because they don't, like, they, they, they don't understand that. Right. But once you show them kind of an option, you know, version B, they, when they look at it and compare, aha, okay, I understand. Now I understand. It. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. feel right. Something's wrong yeah. there. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay, awesome. Um, Sean, so as we are approaching the end of our interview, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how we can find more about you, whether, you know, I'm not sure if you still work with clients, but creatives who, who want to learn more from you. What's your website, social media? Um, you can reach me at um, my website, which is um, seanadams.design. Mm -hmm. um, there's also um, an online publication that I've been doing for 10 years now, which is um, burningsettlerscabin.com. And I think my Twitter feed is Sean A. Adams. So um, you can track me down there. And um, yeah, there's always new books rolling around. I think I'm working on one right now for the Smithsonian. So there's always something kind of fun around the corner when I'm not actually forced to just be dealing with administrative issues. Right. Yeah, so I'm going to include those links in the description box so you guys can check it out. And of course, I'm going to link to the book. Uh, oh, thank you so much. In the description as well. So you guys can, you know, learn more about all those principles, all those concepts that Sean is talking about. We just gave you an overview, some of them, but there is much more information and, and uh, interesting things in the book. So yeah, I think thank I'll have you to write the second version. I'll do revenge of how design makes us think. Because, oh, yeah. Uh, I honestly, I had to jettison 12 chapters because they were just, it was like, yeah, you've got 224 pages. You cannot have 35 chapters, but. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we can, we should expect the second edition soon. Yeah. Revenge of, that'll be the next <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. Uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you for such great questions. Thank you. And thanks right. for the hard work you do. All right. Talk to you later. Same. Bye.